need a Bible, we want to get one put in your hands if you need one. While well, I was trying to think of anything I needed to say or add, but I guess there's not. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They'll get one put on it. Thank you for joining us today. Which camera are we on? The far one? The, there's a thank you for joining us, Mr. and Mrs. Online Community. I don't know how to say that. All right, guys, let's take our Bibles and turn in them to uh, 1 John. Today we're going to look at a few more verses, another handful of verses. Chapter 3, we'll look at verses 4 through 9 in a Bible study that I have entitled, The Proof is in the practice. And so with that, let's take our hearts uh, to the Lord. Uh, Father, once again, we just say thank you for meeting with us and ministering to us. And God, we just need you to breathe life into us and into this time of, of study in your word. And we pray, God, that your word would find uh, good soil in which to take root in our hearts. And so give us ears to hear you and uh, speak, Lord, as you do. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what we are, what we shall be, and what we should be. That is the context uh, that we are coming back to here in 1 John chapter 3. The love of God has seen fit to make us children of God. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, that is what you are presently. You are a child of God. Now, what we shall be is still uh, a bit of a mystery. We don't know exactly what our transformation uh, in glory throughout all eternity entails when Jesus returns. What we do know is that we'll be like Jesus in that we will be perfectly holy. Uh, we will be perfectly righteous, perfect in love. No flaws, no failures. We'll inhabit our resurrection body. We'll be like Jesus. What that should be inspiring in you and in me is purity. Knowing that Jesus could return for us at any moment, that we'll stand before him, that we'll be made like him, should render a certain effect in our lives. It should serve to clean us up morally. And so if you desire to live sinfully, then the simple truth is you haven't been born again of the Spirit of God. Uh, God's Spirit does not dwell in you. If the Spirit of God lived in you, you would have a desire to be pleasing to God, uh, to render obedience to God, rather than being content and being rebellious before God. So here in verse 4, John begins to reason from the negative. Um, the child of God desires to render obedience. The, the unbeliever, pardon me, has no such desire. They're content to rebel against God, to live in sin before God. And so let's look, let's turn our attention. Look at verse 4, chapter 3, 1 John. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our our sins and in him there is no sin. So he's moving from comparison, we shall be like him, that is Jesus, to contrast. He speaks of whoever commits sin in the light of, in him there is no sin, and he was manifested to take away our sins. And just so that there's no confusion as to what sin is, John defines it at its most basic root. It's absolute disregard for the law of God, which is 
inherently disregard for the one who made the law, even God himself. And just to be clear, we know that in Christ, we're not under the Mosaic law, okay? So this is not a reference to the 613 laws put in place by Moses for the children of Israel. What John is simply saying is that sin is anything that runs contrary to the will of God or the word of God or the ways of God. So a sinner is one who is insubordinate, that is defiant to the will or the word of God. Now, we should also set something else straight uh, as we come out of the gate so that there's no confusion here. That is this. John is not preaching or teaching sinless perfection this side of eternity. Uh, we can never take apart apart from the whole, right? We have to be very careful when we're studying scripture that we don't isolate or separate a verse from its context or the overarching context of the totality of the counsel of God's word. John has just stated in verse 2 that we won't be like Jesus until we see Jesus as he is, that is face to face. Back in chapter 1 he said this if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and so the key to our understanding here in our present passage is found in this word commits in the greek it's a verb that is found in the present perfect tense all that means is that it speaks of a continual habitual course of action it is not a reference to someone who falters in or occasionally falls into sin or struggles with sin stumbles over sin or anything like that it speaks of someone who blatantly habitually and uh, continually practices sin for the child of god sin will be the exception not the rule. Okay, you follow me with that? Uh, the believer will stumble occasionally, maybe even struggle constantly, but will not blatantly, habitually, continually sin without regard for God or his word. And again, just so there's no confusion as to exactly what John means when he uses the word sin, because sometimes we get stuck on a word, right? Okay, well, he who commits sin, well, what does we you know, define sin, right? I mean, we do this. I, uh, I, I enjoy jujitsu. People know that. And if I was to say, I rarely get submitted, and someone said, define rarely, I'd say frequently. You see, that, that's, so sometimes it's not the word, it's the meaning behind the word that we have to pay attention to. And so, you know, he who commits sin, well, what is sin? Define sin. John says, okay. He says sin is lawlessness. Now, as I mentioned, we know that in Christ, uh, we're no longer under the Mosaic law, but does that mean the law serves no purpose? No, not at all. In fact, let's, as far as that goes, let's just consider the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, by the way, you should know that nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated and repeated in your New Testament, uh, ensuring that they are still there to govern and guide our hearts. You understand? There's only one that's not repeated. Most of you know which one that is. Anyone care to shout it out? 
Yeah, the one about the Sabbath. The law to keep the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Testament, and that's because the work is finished in Christ. You know, we rest in Him perpetually, uh, continually. He is, Jesus is our Sabbath. You remember the words, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said, Rest for your soul. You don't have to work for your salvation. He's done the work. You can rest in the finished work of the cross. Um, so, amen, by the way? Okay. But the Bible is clear that the law was never given to save us. You know, people will like to say occasionally, you'll run across that person who shares with you that, well, you know, I live by the Ten Commandments. Well, no, you don't. Because you can't. And we repeat this on the regular around here. We come flawed from the factory. Meaning we are born with an imperfect nature. A sin nature. Therefore, listen to me. It is impossible that we should render perfect obedience. Uh, an imperfect person can never render perfect obedience. Does this make sense to you? In theory... If you could, then you could be saved by keeping the law. But you can never keep it because it's aimed at not who you are outwardly, but who you are inwardly. And that's what Jesus was teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. And he said things like, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman or looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her notice in his heart you see you might toe the line outwardly but inwardly in your heart you're guilty and man may look to the outward appearance and say yeah this guy's uh, you know right on he's he's never committed adultery he's never committed murder he's never stolen anything but god searches the heart so the purpose of the law was never to save us. It was meant to show us our need for a Savior. Paul put it this way. He said, now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, here's why, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, in other words, just by saying, well, I've never murdered anyone, I've never committed adultery, you know, by, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." The law was given as a mirror of sorts so that you and me, uh, so that we could look into it and see all the filth of our hearts being reflected back to us so that we could see and realize our guilt before God and cry out to him to cleanse us, to rescue us, to save us. But when we act without regard to God, his word his will, his ways. We commit lawlessness, and lawlessness is sin. And let me encourage you, when you come before God, when you sin, there you are, you've done what you've done, you've said what you've said, you've sinned before God, when you come before him, don't make excuses for it. There you are in your prayer closet. Don't downplay it. Don't candy coat it. Confess it. Don't tell God, well, God, I made a mistake. No, call it for what it is. 
I have sinned. I've erred exceedingly. I've played the fool. Oh, God, have mercy. Forgive me. Confess. God already knows what you've done. And the only one that you're fooling and calling it anything less than it is, is yourself. So, sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. So you can see he's showing the obvious inconsistency of claiming to be a Christian, claiming to be a believer, and leading a life that is earmarked by sin. That goes against the grain of the very reason that Jesus came. It is inconsistent with his nature in you. Why did Jesus come? Why was he manifested? Uh, why did Christ touchably, tangibly, physically come to this earth? To take away, the meaning is to lift up and to carry off our sins. The prophet Isaiah put it like this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was manifested to take away our sins. Perhaps you can remember the scene in your mind's eye. There he was out there ministering to, moving among the multitudes, John the Baptist. And Jesus began to uh, make his way through the crowd. And John saw him and pointed to him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes away sin's penalty. He breaks the bondage of sin's power. And when we're with him in glory, he'll completely remove sin's presence. And at the risk of stating the obvious, it's only Jesus who can take away sin. You can't take away your sin. I can't take away my sin. It's impossible that we should cleanse ourselves in this way. Now, many try, don't they? Uh, through, some try through what's called asceticism, right? They uh, punish themselves. There they are. They're beating themselves, whipping themselves, starving themselves. They're, they're crawling on their knees. And, or, they're, you know, or, or perhaps they try through good works. Well, you know, I, I know I've done a lot that's bad. I try to do good to make up for it. You just can't do it. Remember, imperfect people can't render perfect atonement in any form, in any fashion. We must receive the atoning work, the cleansing work of Jesus on our behalf. He takes away sin's penalty. Neither can we break the power of sin in our lives. Jesus does that. It's his work. We have to receive it. We have to respond to it. And we certainly can't take away the presence of sin in our lives. 
That's the work of Jesus. It'll be fully realized when we're glorified with him in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, only the Lord Jesus can clean you up. And he was manifested to take away our sins. You know, many people are of the, mind, they're of the mindset, uh, well, you know, I need to get this taken care of, or I need to get that taken care of. You know, maybe there you are, you're inviting someone to church, you're trying to introduce them to Jesus Christ, and they're like, well, you know, I need to take care of this, or I, I, I got to address that, or whatever the case may be, then I'll come to Jesus. And listen, that's like saying, well, you know, after I get feeling better, after I get rid of this cancer, then I'll go see the doctor. Uh, listen, Jesus went into the temple, didn't he? There he is in Matthew chapter 21 or in John chapter 2. And then he cleansed it. He overturned the tables. He made right all that was wrong within it. And so too with you and me. We come to Jesus just as we are. We're open to him coming into our lives just as we are. He'll be the one to overturn the tables of sin in your life. He'll take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Jesus, being the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish, perfect and without sin, was qualified to make the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible teaches that he took our sin upon himself and carried it away, as it were. Uh, well, how far away? Well, the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed or separated our sins from us. And we talk about this from time to time, don't we? How far is the east from the west exactly? <laughs> well, that's a, good, that's a good answer, but it's incorrect technically. <laughs> it's an immeasurable distance. You know, we talk about, you can go, I don't remember how far it is. Don't Google it right now. Just stay tuned in. Like you can go from the north to the south and eventually you'll start heading north again. There's a, there's a, a measurable distance from north to south. And I love the details and how the Holy Spirit inspires the writers of scripture. He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. Well, it's like, well, that's pretty far, but I could get there. He says from the east to the west, you take off east, you're never going to get to a west pole. You take off west, you'll never find an east pole. You'll just keep going west forever and ever and ever. That's how far it's gone. It's removed completely, entirely. You see, Jesus cleanses us of our sin. And so understand what John is saying here. If you say you're a believer, yet you habitually and continually practice sin, there's one of two things that's happening. And I'm just going to lay it on the line for you. Either number one... You're fake. That is, you're putting up a pretense for show or for whatever reason. Or number two, you've deceived yourself because Jesus came to take away our sins. And in case you're uncertain on the issue, look at how he hammers it in here in verse 6. He says, whoever abides in him does not sin, and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So what's happening here? John is adding it up for us, isn't he? He's connecting the dots. He's doing the math. Jesus takes away sin. Okay. In him there is no sin. Okay. Therefore, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, at the risk of redundancy... 
He's not saying that as a child of God, you will never commit a single act of sin. We've already established this. As we can't forget context, as we make our way through these passages, this verb sin, again, in the present tense, speaking of that settled habitual way of life, what John is bringing into focus for us is, is a person's character. Does this make sense? The believer's life will not be characterized by sin. What it will be characterized by is abiding in Christ, abiding in him. Sin will be the exception, not the rule. I think a great illustration of what John's talking about here would be found in Luke chapter 15. You can write it down, look it up later. It's uh, verses 11 through 32. It's the familiar passage of the prodigal son. The child of God can certainly find himself or herself in the pig pen. But he or she is not a pig. And so you're out of your environment even being there. And the child of God won't abide in the pig pen, won't continue to partake in the slop of sin. He or she will repent, will return to their heavenly father. You see. And you might just jot this down and read it later. Romans chapter 6. The whole point is the transformation. There in Romans chapter 6, the whole point of the passage is the transformation of a person's life when they become a new creation in Christ. The old you, that person that you used to be, is dead. And sin no longer has dominion or authority over you. The new nature that you have just is not compatible with or comfortable in sin. So in some ways, the question isn't really do you sin or do you not sin? You do and you will. The better question may be, how do you react or how do you respond when you sin? Do you wallow in it? Do you perpetually give in to it? Do you allow it to characterize or dominate your lifestyle? Or are you convicted by your sin? Do you humbly confess your sin? Do you battle against your sin through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? And you're praying to God, you see, confessing and asking for cleansing and to give you victory over. Here's the thing, you guys. Don't make a, let's say, peace treaty with sin in your life. Don't wink at sin's presence in your life. Don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. Don't make an excuse for it. Well, you know, everyone has their struggles. This one's mine. It's, you know, at least I'm a lot better. I mean, I could be doing this or that, but I'm only here, you know, doing this and this is much better. Listen, that goes against the grain of everything we are in Christ. The work that he's done and is doing in your life, he was manifested to what? To take away our sins. You see how this is working? Not to allow us to make an excuse for our sins. Paul said it like this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See that mindset that, well, I'm going to give in. I'm going to be okay with. I'm going to say, well, at least it's not this. It could be that. No, 
Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. You need a, you need a new mindset, you see. And that comes through the word of God. Whoever sins habitually, characteristically, has neither seen nor known him. You know, there's one thing that, well, there's several things, but something that I've come to really appreciate about John and his writing here is he is so matter-of-fact. He is so brass tacks. He just does not mince words for him. There's no ambiguity. There's not a, well, I'm not really sure, you know, in this situation, Scenario: This doesn't exist for him. If you lead a life of unrepentant sin, it's simple. You don't know Jesus Christ. You've never seen that is experienced or perceived him. Perhaps a super basic way to think of it is like this. There are some people in this world that perhaps you deem so great. I mean, you just think of them and maybe... and. Maybe it's someone who's a, a, a spiritual leader, you know, or, or maybe it's just a leader out there in some company high up in the, on the, you know, in the, in the totem pole, or maybe it's a celebrity. I don't know, guys. But there's someone out there, you know, and you just, in your mind, they're so great. They're so wonderful that if you got to see them, you know, if you got to meet them, if you got to know them, it would just change your life forever. Well, Jesus is that kind of person, only on a much greater scale, okay? If you meet him, if you see him, that is, if you experience him, you will never be the same. Jesus changes lives. That's what John is saying. Now, look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You see, John says, don't be fooled. If someone's righteous, they'll practice righteousness. Let me give it to you another way. You don't have a church life and a business life and a social life. We don't compartmentalize like that. Some people try to. Well, I tithe appropriately in church, but I cheat on my taxes. And that's okay, though. They're two different things. There's two, two different worlds there. No, they're not. One who is righteous practices righteousness. This thread is woven into every area of their lives. You see that? Jesus said it like this. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Here's what he's saying. The fr Listen to me. The fruit of a person's life will reveal the root of a person's life. Does that make sense to you? If I'm rooted in Christ, the fruit of my life will reflect that. If I'm not rooted in Christ, that will be reflected as well. Through the practiced 
patterns that come into fruition in my life. And just to say it out loud, John isn't saying that we're made righteous before God by our own righteous works. He's saying the righteousness of Christ in your life will be made evident in the way you live. I don't know if it was Charles Spurgeon who it was that said it first, but the principle in play here is this. The grace of God that does not change my life will not save my soul. Or we could say it like this. The grace of God that saves your soul will change your life. If the nature of Christ is in you, it will necessarily shine forth from you. Easy enough? Okay. Verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, I just gave you a principle, didn't I? Fruit reveals the root. John is continuing to drive that home for us. The idea is this. If a person knows God, um, if a person has been born again of God, they will obey God. If a person does not know God, has not been born again of God, they will obey the devil. Now, that doesn't mean that they sit around in the lotus position on a pentagram with candles lit around it, and there's this, like, there they are, and they're serving Satan, and they're seeking Satan and all that. What he's saying is that if you don't serve God, you serve the devil by default. There's no other option. There's no other choice. Jesus said it like this. You're either for me or you're against me. You are light or you are darkness. There's nothing in between. He who sins habitually, characteristically, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. John's giving us a little insight here, isn't he? Sin finds its origin in Satan. So, the contrast here, guys, is between Christ, in him there is no sin, and the devil, who is the source of all sin. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that any time you sin, the devil made you do it. We're all responsible for the decisions that we make. However, there is an acknowledgement here that the devil is responsible, ultimately, for sin entering the world, orchestrated by that whole debacle back in the Garden of Eden where he deceived Eve and then resulted in Adam's disobedience and all of that. But again, it's comparison, it's contrast for the sake of discerning is a person of God or, or not? Of the, are they of the devil? You will act like your father is the idea. One will practice righteousness, the other will be content to live in sin. And he who sins is of the devil. And check it out. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, now this is more insight, isn't it? Into the purpose of the coming of Christ into this world. What was the first thing that John told us? For what reason was he manifested? Did he touchably, tangibly, physically come to the earth? Well, it was to uh, take away our sins. Well, here he tells us, secondly, for this reason he was manifested to destroy 
That is to nullify or dissolve the works of the devil. Or to understand it another way, Jesus came to set you free from Satan's grip and to break the chains with which he had enslaved you. No one and no thing outside of Christ can do that for you. No preacher, no counselor, no therapist. However, Jesus Christ, the great physician, can break chains and set you free from the bondage of sin and death. You see, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And whom the Son sets free, come on somebody, is free indeed. Satan places you in bondage to sin. Jesus sets us free from sin that we might lead our lives set apart, the word sanctified, yeah, set apart to God. And whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed, God's seed, remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Well, John is saying, like Paul back in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20, that when I'm truly born again of God, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, Paul wrote to the Romans, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That new nature that's in you, it will not sin. In fact, John says it cannot sin. Why? Because God's seed remains in you. Now, when he's talking about God's seed, is he talking about the life of Christ within you? Is he talking about the seed of the word of God that abides in you? Honestly, guys, I think there's room for both. Um, when the life of Christ is in you, when the word of God is rooted in you, that new nature in you will not sin against God. Uh, are you closing, Karen? You can come on up. Well, perhaps you're wondering, well, then how does that work? Because I still sin. Well, listen, Paul addresses all of this stuff. The scriptures address these things. When God saved you, he gave a new nature to you, didn't he? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are made new. But he did not remove the old nature from you. This is Romans chapter 7. Now that new nature won't sin. But when we choose to yield ourselves to the old nature, we stumble, we falter, we fail. And these two natures are constantly warring with each other within your members. And it's honestly, it's why... A backslidden Christian is the most miserable person on the planet. You know, he has too much of the Lord in him to enjoy sin and too much sin in him to enjoy the Lord. And there's this constant war within him. He's miserable. What's the answer? Ephesians chapter 4 that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and put on the new man which was created according to God 
in true righteousness and holiness. Allow me to put it plainly. When you are born again, a notable, tangible, observable change will take place in your life and it will be worked out into every aspect of your life. The proof is in the practice. If you're practicing sin, you are headed in a dangerous direction. Jesus came to take away our sins. He, being without sin, the Bible says, was made sin for us. There upon the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And if you've not humbled yourself, if you've not surrendered your life to Him... I mean, why put it off another day? Trust in Jesus Christ. Again, old things will pass away. All things will be made new. I mean, how does that sound? New life. New creation in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you help us as your children to put off concerning our former conduct. That old man which grows more and more corrupt. And Father, help us to learn what it means to walk in the Spirit in true righteousness and holiness. Father, help us to refuse to make a peace treaty with our sin and that we would be truly repentant of our sin. And I don't know, guys, if, if everybody here knows the Lord, loves the Lord, and I just never like to take that for granted. Because I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe you show up to church on Sunday because your husband or your wife kind of like makes life miserable unless you do. Maybe you're putting on that show or that pretense. I don't know. But if you've not given your life to Christ and today you know it's time to quit playing games, quit, quit taking chances, or quit trying to clean up your own life, well, then take care of it right here, right now. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. The times of renewal and refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I don't know, man. I mean... I remember, I mean, it's just, it can be so taxing, so burdening to try and do life. And you just feel worn down and times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. So it doesn't matter how old or how young you are, where you've been, what you've done. If you need Christ to come into your life and to wash away your sin, to take away your sin, and to make you new, I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. and If I see it, I'll say so, and you can put it down. But I just want to give you a second and say, you know what, man? Yeah, I'm done fighting. I'm done playing. Whatever the, whatever the word is. But today I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. God bless you. I see you. I see you. God bless you too. Anybody else?
And guys, I know, listen, I have a feeling that I could talk about the burdens and the overwhelming nature of doing life, just even as a believer in this world is swimming upstream, and I can say, who's tired? Who needs, I mean, I'd probably get 60% of your hands. I get it. I know it's hard. In this world, you will have tribulation. Take heart, Jesus says, for I have overcome the world. Be encouraged. Allow the Lord to renew and refresh you. And you know what? If there's sin in your life, if you need to repent, don't don't just do the church thing. Well, I went to church. I did what I think I should have. Whatever. You know what I mean? That's great. I'm glad you're here. Get right with Jesus Christ, man. That's why we're really here. To know him. Surrender our lives to him. To grow in him. To be made like him. So, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And you know what? If you were just saying, you know what? I need Christ to come into my life. I would just encourage you to pray and just ask the Lord to do so. Just in your own words, just tell him, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I'm sick of it. And I'm asking you to come into my heart, into my life overturn those tables of sin and make me new, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, O God. And help me to lead my life for you. Teach me what it means to be light in this dark and dying world. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. And if you're a brother or you're a sister here and you're in that that season of struggle, that season of stress, or just that tough time has found itself bearing down on your shoulders and you're under the strain. Cast your cares upon him. He cares for you. You understand what that means? It means you don't have to hold the burden. You don't have to bear the weight. You can trust him. He loves you. He's good to you. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Give it to Him. Entrust it to Him. That times of refreshing may come into your heart, into your life, from the presence of the Lord. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is for us. And we just surrender fresh to you right here, right now. 
We're asking you, God, to pour out your spirit, to strengthen us, to renew and refresh us. God, that you begin to build in us those patterns that are going to preserve our walk with you in integrity. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.